So I wanted to, to look at this uh, together, as it were. So our text is in John chapter 2, and we're looking at from verse 13 to verse 22, and it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. When the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So that's what we're going to look at. And I wonder, David, if you could fish out the roving microphone. Uh, there's one in the box there, and Steve will help if you can't find it, because I think that would be helpful. So we're going to uh, look at this subject, and I've got things up on there, and hopefully I can write. Yes, I can. Um, So, this is, so as, the, as we come to this text, we're asking, for, we're asking the, the question, what does it say about Jesus and the temple? So the temple is a very important part of Old Testament, um, Old Testament uh, spirituality. And our, our question is, how does Jesus fit in with this? So is he, uh, does he clash with this? Or does he say, yeah, this is very much part of, of what I'm with? Is he in, is, does he clash with it? Or, whoops, is he in partnership with it? And is the temple something that he respects? Mm. Go where I'm supposed to uh, it's not going where I want it to go. Okay, or, or is it something that he disdains? So, uh, what's your initial take on that? So, here's Jesus in the temple. Would you say that he was clashing with the temple or respecting it? What, what, what's your initial reaction of, of Jesus in the temple? Zealous for the temple. Okay, here's a microphone. Just uh, say the last okay. bit again. So he, he was zealous for the temple and he was overcome with, with anger at what was going on in his father's house. Okay, so we've got two things going on. We've got, uh, some, we've got zeal and we've got anger. Uh, which, which is the angry bit? How do we know that there's anger there? Yeah, when he kicks the money changers out of the temple, yep. drives them out. Okay, so do you think he's doing that in a calm, orderly way? Um, well, not a violent way, it's not really the right word, but he, he's angry and he drives them out. He, he thinks they're disrespectful for the way in which they're using the temple. Okay, well, what, what sort of signs do we have that there's an anger going on? Anybody? Like to contribute? He makes a whip, doesn't he? So although Ben, you said he wasn't violent, he does make a whip. Yeah. So that's pretty scary. Uh, I think that is pretty scary, actually. If you that's went down the open market with a whip. Yeah, that's probably more to drive the cattle out rather than to uh, use well, on the a people, thought, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So there's the whip. Anything else that uh, gives us the idea of um, anger? Anybody like to put up a hand for the microphone? You have to. Say, we can't all hear unless Sorry. you say into that. Scattering coins and turning over tables. Yeah, scattering coins, turning over tables is not the most peaceful way of bringing a meeting to a conclusion, is it? So you, you go in, uh, go into the temple, turn over all the tables, send the money scattering all over the place. It's quite a violent, um, angry thing to do, isn't it? 
So let's, uh, let's hold that thought. And the temple was such an important place that it, you could perhaps compare it with going into the Houses of Parliament and throwing over all the order papers or um, all, all the paraphernalia in, in the Houses of Parliament. You know, it's an important place, but to, to, to do something as radical as that um, is quite, quite something. So let's have a little think about the temple. Now the thing is, come on, right. The pen isn't going where I want it to go, you see. So let, let's think about the temple. So I, I asked this question when I was when I doing this uh, study with some children. How many temples were there on earth in Old Testament times? It's just a sort of... It's a simple question, because if you think about parish churches in England, I mean, how many parish churches are there? Hundreds, thousands probably, all over the place. So is the Jerusalem temple like that, that there were lots of temples? No. How many were there? How many? One. Okay, so that's a significant fact, isn't it? This is a unique and special place. So... Let's think, what function did the temple fulfill? And what, so I've used this long word, trajectory. A, traje a trajectory, a trajectory, I'll show you what a trajectory is. A trajectory is when you throw something and it follows a particular path like that, that's the trajectory. And in the Bible, the temple has a trajectory. It starts off somewhere, moves through something, and then comes to land somewhere. So let's have a little think about the trajectory of the temple. So I've got some verses here. So Exodus 29:44. Could somebody pass the microphone to Mark at the back, and he might be kind enough to read this to us. Exodus 29:44. So we're going right back to the beginning of the trajectory, if you like. Uh, the early, early days of the temple, when it wasn't even a temple, it was a tent. So we're in Exodus 29, verse 44. Mark, please, could you read that? So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Uh, yeah, do, do 45 and 46 as well, please. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Thank you very much indeed. So what does that tell us about the role of the temple, tabernacle, um, same thing? There we are right at the beginning. What's the purpose of the temple stroke tabernacle God dwelling with his people so let's see if I can draw this so if we had heaven and earth and heaven is on the top and earth is underneath so the temple is the place where heaven comes down to earth Ooh, that's supposed to be an arrow so if you're on earth and you want to meet with heaven, then you have to go to the temple. Does that make sense? No, because people are looking blank. Uh, the text says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Okay, so God's presence, God's per that's where God is, is in this tent. So if you wanted to meet God, you had to get on your bicycle or your donkey or whatever it was and go to the tent where God lived. Still looking puzzled. Does that make sense to you, Stefano? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is where heaven 
meets earth. Where these two different, two different realms meet in this one point. Yeah? So, sorry about my twiddly diagram. Uh, heaven comes down to earth at this, at this point there. That, well, there, the temple. That's the temple. Uh, let's look at 1 Kings 8. Now, that's a big chapter, and you might remember we studied this chapter quite a while ago. And it's all about the inauguration of Solomon's temple. So we've moved from being a tent to being a building made out of stone. And uh, in verse 10, for example, it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. So we have a building and the cloud represents God's presence and the, the building is filled with the presence of God. And it goes on to say in chapter 8 that, uh, in ver say verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth below, etc. And he has quite a long section about prayer and says that if a human being wants to make contact with God in prayer, do you know what the, the, specific, the, the important point of that is? Let's see, it's in, in shall we say, in verse 35. What's the, the, the temple point there in 1 Kings 8 verse 35 what's the specifically temple component of that they pray towards this place yeah, so, it's not, so we think of prayer, you can pray in any direction. But they were supposed to pray focusing on, Jerusalem, on, on the temple. That was the place where they could meet God. And Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2 and 3. Perhaps Mark could read us those. Haggai chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 so we're down here thank you Haggai chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 Mark yeah yep this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the words of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is, it is a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin. Okay, thank you. So uh, what is the state of the temple in this part of the trajectory in the, uh, as we're, we're in Haggai? What is the state of the temple? It's a ruin. Uh, so we've got to a point where the temple is a ruin. Why is it a ruin? Because it was destroyed by enemies uh, in the time of the exile. And what is God's plan for the temple according to Haggai 1 and 2? You have to perhaps deduce it, but what, what, is, it, what is it all about in Haggai? Rebuilding the temple. So the, uh, God's plan is to have this temple up and running. And if you go to Ezekiel, so you have to go back to Ezekiel 47. So this is a prophecy in the time when the exile was happening. Exodus, Ezekiel 47 there's, there's loads of stuff about the, the temple here but let's, if Mark could kindly read us 
one, two, five. That would be helpful. Thank you. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was, so, and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. Thank you. Okay, uh, it's a river. Uh, anything strike you as unusual about the river? Deep. Must be very wide as well. It probably is, yes. Um, how would you describe the shape of the river, if we can say the shape of a river? Or the, uh, I mean, it, it's actually telling you about the depth, isn't it? Could somebody just tell us what's happening with the depth? It gets deeper as you go along, yes. It, so it starts off with a trickle and it, it gets deeper as you go along, which is rather strange. I don't think, I think rivers are only like that when they get, uh, normally when they get other rivers joining them. But this re river gets deeper as you go as you go along. And where does, it, where does the river start off? Yeah, it starts off on the south side of the temple, uh, south of the altar. And so this is a, I, I'm just touching on this. This is a vision of the future. And it's a vision of a rather uh, remarkable temple. Uh, its dimensions are remarkable. And this river that comes from it is remarkable. And it's a future vision. And, I, and, okay, we can hold in our heads. So some Christians would say, okay, that is still to be fulfilled, and God will build another temple of stones, and there will be a remarkable river coming out of it, and that's still something that God hasn't done. And I would say I'm not sure that that's really what it's talking about. It's looking forward to what God will do in a remarkable way, and using the thoughts and ideas of the temple to give us some sort of idea of what that will be. But I don't think it's specifically saying that there will be more bricks, uh, more stones to come. And I, I think this will become clear as we go through. So let's go, that gives a little idea of the trajectory of the temple. So the temple is a big theme in scripture. It starts off in Exodus and it's going on into the future. Let's go back to John's gospel. And I'm going to ask this, temp, uh, this question again. Uh, can we tease this out? In what, how do we know, is Jesus pro-temple or anti-temple? Pro. Okay, could you say, what parts of the text tell us that Jesus is pro-temple? Because there's some specific references that will, will, will confirm this to us. 16? Okay, to the 16, which, which bits of verse 16 are you thinking of? He does, doesn't he? So if I can write this. So to call the temple his father's house means that Jesus has a strong affinity with the temple. This is my father's house. So he's not saying this is an enemy structure. He's not saying that this is a bad thing. He's saying this is my father's house. That's very positive, isn't it? Okay, any other uh, parts of the text that say Jesus is pro-temple? Okay, there is actually a text that encapsulates that. Yeah, verse 17 
Zeal for your house will consume me. So zeal is enthusiasm. Yeah, so he's positive about the house. Uh, it's an interesting text though. Would you like to look back at where it comes from? It comes from Psalm 69.9. Please could Mark read us Psalm 69, if we take verses 8 to 12 to give us a little bit of context. Psalm 69, let's wait for everybody to find the place. Psalm 69, verses 8 to 12, thank you. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Thank you very much. What sort of situation would you say the writer is in? Happy, sad, I mean, which, which Facebook? Emoticon, would you give him? Lugubrious. lugubrious. Oh, I don't even know what lugubrious means. Uh, dour. dour. It would be one of those. Yeah. Yes, he's uh, he's got a, a a sad a sad face. He weeps and fasts and endures scorn. Uh, why why is that? Is he ill? What is his problem? Yes, okay, he's in a mess. And he's become a scorn and ridicule to the people. So other people are not surrounding him with prayer and enthusiasm and encouragement. They're actually making fun of him. So they're sort of picking on him. Uh, I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. So he's insulted. This is a very strange situation for this, this person to be in. And uh, it says that zeal for your house consumes me. So the word to consume, it means in English it means to eat, to consume, to eat. And zeal for your house, let's say, uh, fills me, consumes me. So the word consume could have two meanings. It could say I'm just full of this, consume, or it could mean I'm eaten by it. So zeal for your house uh, destroys me. See, it sort of consumes me. It, it, it uses me up. It wears me out. Something, something like that. Uh, and if, does that make sense? It, yeah, overwhelms. Yes, yeah. Because you see, when you go back into John's Gospel, you, you, we might we might have those two meanings in mind: that Jesus is full of zeal for the Lord's house. So consume in that sense. Or we might be thinking, this, his zeal for the Lord's house is going to end up with him being killed. And if he hadn't had that zeal, he wouldn't have been consumed. Do you see what I mean? So there's, there's, I think there's, there's those two possible angles to it. Um, so we, we think he's pro-temple. Are we, are we thinking that? So what, what is he so angry about? So if, if the temple is a great place, it's his father's house, what, what, what is he being angry about? They're making money out of it? The wrong use of the temple? Trading? It's not holy? Okay, hold those thoughts. Let's come to Malachi chapter 3. 
verses 1 and 2. Here is a, a, a temple reference. Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Uh, please, Mark, could you read us Malachi 3, 1 and 2? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenants whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Thank you. What mood or role does that messenger have regarding the temple? Purify? Prepare the way. Uh, yeah, prepare the way is in verse 1. Um, where's the purify? It's there in verse 3, isn't it? Purify, yes. What mood would you say to the, goes with the purify? Mighty and powerful. Thank you, yeah, I think that's right. What do you, how would you put verse 2 into that equation? Yeah, yeah. there's something rather fearful, in fact, isn't there? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So there's something of judgment here, isn't there? There's something um, or, which is not so much sort of supportive and encouraging, but threatening. Uh, that the, uh, who can endure the day of his coming? You want him to come, but just be careful. Who can endure the day of his coming? He'll be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Okay, so we've got those thoughts in our minds. Let's, let's move on. So I think some of these we've, we've already answered. So, let's, so we're back in John's Gospel, and I want to ask the question, why has John put this story here? Because the other Gospel writers put this story of the... Um, of Jesus coming into the temple. Anybody know where, where this usually is depicted? It, it would be in Matthew, but do you know whereabouts in Matthew? 21 12, I think. That's really, I'm, I'm so impressed. <laughs> you have, it's right. You get a gold star. I think. Fantastic, yeah, 21, uh, it's Matthew 21, 12, for example. And whereabouts in the story of Jesus, I, when I say story, I don't mean fictional story, but in the, in the narrative, where does that usually come? Mm, go on, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's usually at the end, isn't it, the, the, the last few days. But here, John, either because it's happened twice, once at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and once at the end, or because he thinks, I'm going to tell you something that happened at the end because it'll help you to understand all the rest of what happens. I think, so that's, you know, maybe he's doing that. I, I, um, so I've used the word programmatic to mean it sets a program. It says this is what Jesus is about. And if that were the case, if it was programmatic... It's saying at the beginning of the gospel, I want you to keep your eyes on this Jesus because he is in the business of doing something with the temple uh, which is described in the story here. It's got something to do with his pro-temple. He's, he's strongly in favor of it. And there's also things that he's strongly against. And he has his own particular take on the temple, and that's going to be worked through the rest of the gospel. So that's, that's worth thinking about. So I've lost my little pen. I was fiddling with that when I was talking. Anybody see what, what I did with it? That's so. Did I? Did it? 
Mm. Ah, here it is. It's in my Bible. Yeah. Thank you. So I think we've 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 looked at this. Uh, was it just irritation? No, he wasn't. It wasn't. It was just irritated. He, there was something important. Uh, capricious means for no particular good reason. He was just having an off day. So shall I strike those through? He wasn't angry just because he was just irritated for no good reason. Yeah. And it wasn't capricious because he's just having a bad day. Yes. Um, do you notice verse 15? He makes a whip out of cords. So I think that would take a, a while to do. You'd need to go to the shop or get some cords on eBay. It would take some preparation. So I don't think Jesus just suddenly lost his rag. I think there's something quite premeditated about this. He makes a whip out of cords. This morning, I'm going to go to the temple and I'm going to express this particular this particular thing. Now then, in verse 18, the Jews say, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? It's a very good question, because if you'd gone into the Houses of Parliament and knocked over everything there and um, made a big fuss, the police would come up and say, you know, you have no right to be doing this. That's the sort of thing we expect George Galloway to do. You're not George Galloway, you, you, you're just an ordinary member of the public. You have no right to do this. So they're saying, what right do you have to do this? And Jesus' answer is, is almost like a proverb. It's almost like a riddle. Verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. So... I put to these two questions, what level were the Jews speaking on and what level was Jesus speaking on? It's a little bit like what we looked at this morning. These conversations go on two levels which don't necessarily match up with each other. So what, what were the Jews thinking that Jesus was talking about? Temple building. Temple building. Yeah. Uh, it took them 46 years to get all those stones together. And so they're thinking that, that, that Jesus is, is talking about uh, literal stones. But what is Jesus referring to? Is he saying, if this building is destroyed, I will put it back together again because these stones are really important? Is that what he's saying? No. What is he actually referring to? Himself. Yeah. He's referring to himself. And it says, does it say his Does it say that the temple that he spoke of was himself, or does it say more specifically, his body? The temple he was spoken of. And just think of the, destroy this temple. It's a little bit open-ended, but what do you think is the implication about who's gonna do the destroying? Speaks to them, says, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. It sounds like that, doesn't it? The, 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 um, the building, who does the building? No, who does the building? Uh, Jesus says, I will build it again in three days. Um, doesn't he? Yeah so, yeah, so he says, I will do the building. Yes? But who does the destroying? The Jews. It sounds like that, doesn't it? You're going to end up destroying this temple. And... What do you think Jesus has in mind when he's saying this temple is going to be destroyed? Well, wait a minute, do the destruction bit first. That they're going to kill him. I think he's looking forward to his death. Does that make sense? And that the, so the, raising, uh, raise, the building in three days is, is now is what? When it's be resurrected, yes, yeah, okay. Now then, I want to come back to this question of what Jesus was really angry about and what end result he was looking for. So given all the things that we've, we've thought about, he really has in mind his body and he really has in mind his resurrection. 
let me ask you this question. Do you think that we're to learn from this story that if the traders had traded in a holy way, if, the, uh, if they'd done so reverently, if they'd done so honestly, because people did have to buy doves and things like that as part of the system, uh, if, if they'd done that nicely, would Jesus have said, that's fine? That's fine. Let, let, let it just carry on like that. Do you think that's what he would have... The, Okay, because? Okay, okay, misuse of what it's intended for. Because I'm asking the question, if they put everything right, let's suppose Jesus was saying, I don't want you in the temple, I want you sort of outside the temple, that would be fine. Do you think, on the basis of all that we thought, he's saying, if you could just tidy up your act, the temple can just carry on, that's fine. It's great, my father's house. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. See, what I think it's easy to miss, and you've just got to think through this. I don't think he's saying, if you clean the temple up, that's fine, just carry on. I think he's saying, what we need is a new temple altogether. Because this old temple, wonderful though it has been, does not do what I want it to do. You know, that trajectory does not land with a nice, clean set of bricks, with nice, uh, nice people in it. It lands with Jesus. Um, that's what he's aiming for. He's saying, we need a new temple, this old one. And so it's a question of, is, the, is his anger focused on the abuses, or is his anger perhaps to some degree focused in frustration on what on the temple almost at its best? You know, this temple does not do what it's supposed to do. People cannot draw near to God through these stones. They need something better. These sacrifices do not do what they're supposed to do. They don't take away sin. They don't open the way to God. I want something new and better, and that will be me. And that will be me, says Jesus, when I, uh, through my death, when this temple is destroyed, and when I raise again a brand new temple, which will do all the things that temple, the temple ought to do. See, I, I think there is that, that sense in, in there. Did that make sense? Yeah, I, you, you just have to think about it a little bit. So let's, let's do some applications. And I would like us, when we've done this, if we can, to turn them into prayers. Because the point of doing a Bible study, uh, like, like we're doing this evening, I think is that we should have something that we can pray. Uh, we can pray in adoration. So if this gives us some reasons to adore Jesus, that's a good outcome. Uh, we can pray in, in sort of devotion, offering ourselves to the Lord. Uh, we can pray to be made more holy in certain ways and things like that. So let's, uh, let's see. Uh, so in, how could Jesus liken his body to the temple? Colossians 1.19. I think if, if Mark could read us Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Thank you very much. And the, the, the bit that I wanted to draw our attention to is there in verse 19, where it says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So like the temple is meant to be the place where you go to find God, and God is there in the temple. Uh, so we have Jesus in the incarnation, that he's, he's human, he's made out of the same stuff as we are, but there dwells within him the whole fullness of God. So the, the temple is a sort of example for us, or a way of understanding the incarnation. Uh, do you remember Jesus talking to Philip, and saying, have you been with me so long and you don't realize that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That the, the Father is so in Jesus, um, like the temple was supposed to do, but Jesus does it so much better. So I think that gives us a, a way of being amazed at who Jesus is. It's one thought there. Um... <coughs> So num number two, I've sort of put a question mark. Any other thoughts about Jesus and the temple that would be helpful just to flag up this evening? Yes, that, that, I think that's a, a, a very helpful thing. The temple was the place of sacrifice. Oh. Yeah, the temple is a place of sacrifice. And in Jesus, the sacrifices are fulfilled, aren't they? We don't, am I right? We don't need to kill any more goats. We don't need to kill any bulls. We don't need to make a, a, an heir in the front of the church here for sacrificing sheep. Do we? No, because Jesus did it all. And all the things that you would do in the, in the temple, they're completed in him, sacrifice. That's really helpful. Anything else? Okay. God coming to the temple as he was expected, mm. as he did in the time of Solomon, in a sense. Yeah. But he comes in the form of a messenger. It says that the messenger of the covenant Presumably, one who declares a new covenant, a new, uh, a, a new arrangement between God and man. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Priests. That, priests. Well, that's really helpful, isn't it? It's the place of priests. How would you draw that out, Chris? Yes. High priest who was a certain line but always failed. He was a man. Yes. Who was uh, weak and then he died. Yes. And then Hebrews tells us so much about Jesus being the great high priest who yes. ever lives to make intercession for us. Yeah. He offers himself. Yes. Yeah. yeah brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Say it again. Can we also go... Yeah, don't, uh, I think the answer is don't go too far off course, oh. uh, but, but um, yeah. No, just about the veil and the priest, the veil that only the priest could get into the most high, you Thank know. Thank you. Yes, there was a veil, wasn't there? So yeah. that's, that's going to be with Jesus uh, taken away, so we can have that access. That is brilliant. Yeah, thank you very much, because that's one of the things about his death, wasn't it? As his death, the temple of, the veil of the temple the was veil. torn in two from top to bottom, uh, implying that we can have access to God, and that's what we do have, isn't it? By a new and living way, we come into the holy place through the blood of Jesus. And the Jewish temple caretaker was probably busy the following day stitching it all back up again. <laughs> yeah. But in, in the Lord Jesus, we have that access. That's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Hallelujah. Mm. 
Uh, so I'll put the veil. Thank you. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. I think Ephesians 2, if Mark could read us from verses, yes, from verses, why don't, why don't you do from 18 to 22? Ephesians 2, 18 to 22. Uh, Ephesians 2, 18 to 22. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank you very much. What does this, what, what does this tell us about the temple? How does this teaching, uh, it goes a little bit further than what we've looked at so far. What does this tell us about the temple? Thank you, that we are, uh, we are a holy temple. And is that something separate from Jesus Christ? Look very carefully at the text. Verse 21, you are a holy temple? In the Lord. In the Lord. So it's not, not, not a separate thing, it's a, in the Lord. So in, that he is the temple and we're in him and we partake of, of, of that by virtue of being in him. And what, what does verse 22 tell us about us then? We're being built together. Yeah, thank you. That God lives within us. Yes, that God lives within us. By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Yeah. And um, is it, do you think, a singular thing or a plural thing? In other words, the you... Does he mean you singular? So you singular, Ara, the spirit lives within you singular, or do you think it's you plural? Well, I think it is. All of us. Okay, I think, I, I, I think that's what it's t- talking about. It's, it says you're all built together. So he's saying this is a community in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, when people come in and we are being church, we're being community, there's a sense that God is here that is not quite the same if we're scattered about, but as we're we're community together, somebody would come and say, God is here with these people. There's something about the atmosphere, something about the way they relate. There's something about what goes on which shows that God is here. So I think that's... Uh, that's a, a wonderful teaching. Let's look at one. Uh, let's look at. Oh, what have I got? Two fourteen. Yeah. Well, so, so we've come to this one here. Um, what applications do the New Testament make of this doctrine? Ephesians two fourteen. I'm sure I, I'm, I must have had a reason for quoting this verse when I prepared it. Let's see if we can find out what it was. Mark, can you read us Ephesians two fourteen? For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Thank you. Do you know who the two are? Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Yeah. It's the big, the big, big division in humanity, Jew versus Gentile. And he says that in Christ, these two are made one. And the implication being, if that biggest of all divisions can be broken down in Jesus Christ to make unity, then how much more can any other petty divisions 
be broken down to make unity. So there shouldn't be a division between educational background or ethnicity or um, uh, income or class or anything like that. There should be unity. And that's a very important thing in, that's what Ephesians is talking about, it's a very important thing in, in, in church life, that unity, so that we shouldn't be young versus old, uh, we shouldn't be um, one, one group versus another group, we, we're to be unity. Uh, that's a very, very important application of this. And let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. One Corinthians six from verses eighteen to twenty. One Corinthians six, eighteen to twenty. Okay, Mark, please. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Thank you. Does that text mention the temple? Yeah. Is it singular or plural? Is it? Uh, uh, how does that work? Oh, it says bodies. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, if it's your bodies, so put up your hand if you've got more than one body. No, <laughs> it, 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 mean, it would mean each one of you separately. So there's a load of bodies, but each body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it would be singular, wouldn't it? Uh, because, uh, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't enlarge on that, that thought. It's, it, it's a singular thing. And, and what's the application of the fact that God lives in Christians sort of individually as well as corporately? The application here? Yeah, it's, it's, it's to do with, with sexuality and saying that um, sex is something that, that in, in the nature of it, is you, your body is the, is the vehicle by which that is done. Um, and in, in, these day, in the days of Corinth, they might have said, oh, spirituality, that's to do with your soul and your spirit. It's nothing to do with your body. You can do anything with your body. It doesn't really count for anything. And, and what, what Paul is saying is, no, that's not right, because God lives within your body, and that makes your body like a temple. And the temple is a holy place, and you can't do unholy things with a holy place. That's just wrong. I think that's the sort of argument he's using. So it, it, it's an argument about, about, um, about sexuality, that that, that matters. So that's, that, that's the, I think that's the final point. Um, I'm hopeless at working out how long things are going to take. I thought that would be quite short. Um, but I, uh, so what we'll do in a minute, we'll sing. But I think it would be really good if one or two people could pray.